So three ministers were talking in a restaurant one day. They were talking generally about prayer and what they found to be most helpful. They were also discussing the appropriate and physical, uh, effective physical positions for prayer. What seemed to be most effective for them in terms of the physical position that they would take. The telephone, telephone repairman was sitting at the next table. I don't know if Alan Zachary could identify with this, but and one minister said that he thought the, the key was in the hands, that it's important. He found that it was important to place his hands together and even lift them high and maybe even open them at times to, to, uh, to uh, in positionally represent the worship of prayer. The second suggested that real prayer was dependent on the knees. The knees to be needed to be on the floor, kneeling down in order for their prayers to be effective. The third suggested that the, both of the other two had it wrong, that the only position that would accomplish prayer, that accomplish carrying out God's will and, and having God accomplish our will, was being stretched out on the ground, flat on your face. The telephone repairman overhearing this debate just couldn't help himself, and he, and he decided to interject. He said, I found the most powerful prayer that I ever prayed was when I was dangling upside down by my heels from a power pole about 40 feet off the ground. What is the recipe for powerful prayer? What about, what about a prayer might help you to feel assured that God has really heard you? Obviously, if, if, if you were here last week, you know that that's not what we're really even talking about. We're not talking about prayers that move God. I'd like to do some correcting of our thinking this morning. I'd like to challenge you, don't miss the opportunity that prayer is. Don't miss the opportunity that prayer is. Have we been given the Lord's Prayer? as a tool to recite so that we can make sure that God has heard us? Have we been given the Lord's Prayer to, to pray once a week together? <clears throat> not, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. We certainly wouldn't want to be formulaic in our use of the Lord's Prayer in the sense of saying, thinking this prayer is the formula to how, how to get God to move, how to get God to work. And we don't want to be formulaic in the sense of this prayer should never be prayed, just as a quotation. Both are okay. But we have been given the Lord's Prayer as a model for what our prayers should be about. And we come here back to, to the Sermon on the Mount, and we kind of brushed over verses 9 through 13 last week in chapter 6, in which Jesus teaches, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just as a little bit of review, the the context that leads into Jesus' teaching here from last week, verses 7 through 8, we understood it as communicating that we should be rejecting the man-centered version of prayer. And and those verses leading up to Jesus' sharing of what we know as the Lord's Prayer say this. Jesus taught, and when you pray... Do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So we kind of ask the question, with that statement, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, we had to admit that our most common thought at that point is, then why pray? Well, that reveals, really, our kind of man-centered understanding of what prayer is. In, In other words, thinking that the world and our solar system, if you will, rotates around us like we are the most important Uh, thing in that solar system, like our gravitational pull is what holds everybody and everything, including God, in our orbit. Jesus is correcting that by saying, God is even bigger than your prayer. God is outside of, God doesn't need to be informed by your prayer. Prayer is not about manipulating God. He's not powerless without us. He's not out of the loop or unknowing without our input. Prayer is about joining with God as our Heavenly Father. Being involved in what He is doing. And that is so far outside of our default understanding of prayer. Whereas Albert Moeller said, as I shared last week, prayer is not about our informing God. It is rather about us coming into the presence of God in an attitude of prayer and honesty, laying out our lives before him. That's very different than informing him of what we presume that he does not know. You know, our default, our man-centered idea that in our fallenness, <clears throat> we think of prayer as almost like lobbing arrows into the sky. They're like, hey, use this one. It seems to, you know, get, get the big guy to, to listen to you. Or sending up homing pigeons. You know, what's the right pigeon to carry it? What's the right message that's going to get there? Or, or as sadly happens in, in, in many parts of the world, the idea that you, you need to, like, you're not in any sort of position to talk to God directly but there's someone between you and him. You know, maybe a really holy person that's already died. You could pray to that person and have that person pray for you. Reminded of the billboard that I've shared with you before that I saw in Chicago with the image of Mary, the mother of Jesus on it. And the statement below it says, he hasn't stopped listening to her for 2,000 years. Why would he stop now? So in other words, if you want Jesus to listen to you, you got to get Mary to pass your message on to him for you. 
That's, the, that's our man-centered, our default sin nature approach to prayer. Okay, what do I got to do to get God to do what I want him to do? That's what Jesus is correcting in the verses leading up to his teaching on prayer that he opened with pray then like this. The first priority that Jesus gives us to how we should go about talking to his father should challenge us to participate in God's kingdom work. Right off the bat, Jesus says, pray then like this. I think wrapped up in the significance of, okay, is this a prayer that I'm just supposed to be praying? Is Jesus saying, pray this prayer? No, notice, he's saying, pray like this. In some ways, it's a method. In some ways, it's an example. It's categorical understanding. It's also a prioritization of what our focus should be on. Participate in God's kingdom work, I think, should be our first priority. He says, our Father in heaven. In the Old Testament, it was normal for God to be referred to as Israel's father, the nation of Israel's, the father of Israel because of their covenant relationship with God as a nation. Jesus was unusual when he would refer to God as his father. And the term used was Abba. The familiar term that children would use to address their fathers in their homes. A child with the father coming home and saying, Daddy. That's the term that, that Jesus used. It was the term that, that really that, that God had, had provided for, to refer to Israel with in his relationship with them. And here we see the invitation to approach the God of the universe in the same way as God the Son. Pray our Father. You know how significant it is that God the Son says, Our Father? There's also the nature that this is intended, a reminder that we are in a corporate relationship with God. Everything in this prayer is plural. Us, we, our Our relationship to God as our Heavenly Father reflects the intended intimacy of that relationship. And His being our Father in heaven isn't referring to His location as much as it points to His reign over all things. The way that these verses contribute to our looking at the standards of God's kingdom is this. In Christ, we meet the standards of entry into God's kingdom. And we do so as his adopted children. The reason why I'm making that statement is we we are understanding the Sermon on the Mount as, as Jesus teaching us about the standards of God's kingdom. And we've seen that played out throughout these messages. But here we understand, first of all, in this statement, that we understand that we, in Christ, we meet the very standards of God's kingdom. And we do so by being adopted into his family as his children. And all of that is possible because the sin that we are born into, 
that we are born with and that we start committing the first chance we have the opportunity to as children and, and mark us as guilty and separated from a holy God, those sins were laid on Christ. And the penalty for those sins is death. And so Christ died and paid the penalty of our sins. And in trusting Christ as our Savior, we are acknowledging that Jesus paid for our sins. And we are acknowledging that adoption is available to us as God's child through Christ's righteousness. And to be able to address God as our Father is acknowledging that in Christ we have met the standards of entrance into God's kingdom. And we've been adopted as his children. All of that wrapped up in being able to address God as our Father in heaven. So participate in God's kingdom work and join God in exalting himself. That is what God is about, exalting himself. God is not an idolater. He has no other gods before himself. He exalts himself over everyone and everything. And we are called to hallowed his name. That, that really doesn't communicate it to us. Closest thing we have to, to that term is Halloween. And we get that because it's the eve before all saints day. Saints being holy ones. Saying holy is your name. Set apart is your name. When, when, when the name of a person is referred to, it's, it's referring to their, the entirety of their person, their character, their reputation, their desires, their will. He's saying uh, it, it, it reflects his glory as it should be known on the earth. To set apart God's name means to honor who he is. I, I like how the New Living puts it. May your name be kept holy. To pray that his character and his glory on this earth would be honored should be our first priority. As our first priority in prayer, we can accept and know that living in honor of who God is is what every person on the, this earth is created to be doing. It is a grace when God brings people in line with his glory. And we should be praying that we and our lives would be in line with his glory. And that those that we care about and, and even that we don't care about would be blessed with their lives being in line with his glory and his character. Character and glory are honored and his kingdom influence is spreading. And so by prayer, we are to join God in exalting his dominion. The model is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is everywhere. But it is in effect to our benefit when his will is being carried out. May your kingdom be in effect, meaning may your will be carried out. If you notice, Jesus is speaking in poetry here, right? That's why the lines are kind of set uh, statement after statement, kind of like the Psalms are done. 
And so in, in poetry here, your will be done is a rephrasing, restatement of your kingdom come. God's kingdom is present when his will... I am not talking to you. <laughs> Why does my watch do that? Um, God's kingdom is present where his will is being done. He is to reign in us, his redeemed on this earth. And one day he will reign with full effect on this earth. His will carried out as it is in heaven. And growing in Christ means God's kingdom spreading in our life as we more deeply desire to live in obedience and in alignment with his will. The Lord's Prayer, if you recall, is first and foremost is telling us it is not about us. It is not about us. It's not called our prayer for getting to accomplish our purposes. And Jesus illustrated this in the garden when he prayed to the Father prior to his crucifixion, voicing his fear, voicing his trepidation about facing the cross. And he told the Father, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. He was modeling for us the prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done, just as he was teaching it to us here. You know, we live in the dominion of Eric Holcomb. Maybe some of you are happier with that than not. He's our governor, by the way. Uh, For some of you guys, like, what are you talking about? We live in Indiana, so we live in the dominion of Eric Holcomb. To our west is the People's Republic of Illinois, the dominion of J.B. Pritzker. To the north of that is the slightly less pink state of Wisconsin, the dominion of of uh, Tony Evers, right? We, 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 we live in, and therefore um, moving from one dominion, if you will, to another, there's a difference. There are differences between the two. Even if you're not driving on the interstate from, Wisconsin, from Illinois into Wisconsin, even, even if you don't see that welcome to Wisconsin sign, you're still going to notice some differences, you're going to notice a difference of accent. I'll never forget when Kelly and I were walking through Walmart, and we'd been living in South Carolina. She'd been away from Wisconsin for a number of years. And just another point, I was like walking behind her a little bit, and we heard somebody just a few aisles away going, saying, um, Oh, yeah, they're over here. I found them. And she turns and looks at me like, I said, Yep, that's what you sound like. <laughs> You're going to see accent differences. Things are said differently. You know, up in Wisconsin, you're going to hear somebody end a, a sentence with, or no. You want to do that, or no? <laughs> they don't have stoplights. They've got stop and go lights. They're, they're positive thinkers, you know. <laughs> Whereas in Illinois, they, just try, they call them just try and make me stoplights. 
in Wisconsin, you can navigate to any location just using bars as landmarks. Just try it, you know. And usually they have a Pabst Blue Ribbon sign, you know, on the front of them. Uh, if, you're, if it costs you five bucks to move ten miles down the tollway, you're in Illinois. Rest assured. Um, moving from Illinois into Wisconsin, you will notice that some, you know, in one location, they're wondering how long into the football season are they going to start talking about next year? Oh, we'll, be, we'll have it next year. Well, you know, that's, you're in Illinois land. You're in Bears territory there. You know, where, whereas you move into Wisconsin, there's this excitement about the NFL season to start. You know, I mean, they're God's team, right? They, that's why they've got a G on their helmet, right? <laughs> you can tell when you're living in one kingdom after another. And obviously, spiritually, we're not physically moving from one kingdom into another. But as we, as we experience walking by the Spirit versus walking by the flesh, we can know, okay, I'm not living for God's kingdom right now. God, would you reset my heart? Will you change my mindset? God, I don't want to live for my kingdom. I don't want to live, you know, I don't want to be the king of a dunghill. I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in your house. When we pray, we're communicating with our king, who is our father over all. And no matter what state or country we live in, he rules over it. So what might it sound like to pray in this way as Jesus instructs us? Lord, of all the things you might do in this situation, be glorified. Father, take the work of my hands and my mind and use it for your kingdom's purposes. Dear God, you know I want more than anything for my child to know and love you. But I know that even more important is that I praise and honor your name. Father, I'd rather my child be one of those highway workers holding the, the stop sign in the middle of the road and love you than to be a millionaire CEO. Lord, about our, our nation let our nation obey you the same way that the angels in heavens bow to your will. And Lord, start with me. That's what it can sound like to make God's glory, God's kingdom, God's name be your first priority. <clears throat> Let me put these categories of prayer into perspective of, of biblical theology. That's kind of what I try to do with big picture and for those who need a visual here, uh, we have this image. And, and so if you can see that, this is basically the kingdom of God in the garden. When, when, when we were created, walking in relationship with God, everything within that garden exuded it. It glorified the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of God on this earth. And as that garden, as man would multiply and fill the earth, and, and that, that garden, I believe, would extend God's dominion over the entire earth. And there was one foggy area. One area, and, and those red, that, that gray area here represents the one area that they were not to go into. 
that one tree, that one fruit that they were not to eat of. And God put stop signs around it. That's what those red marks are around it. Stop signs. Those were God's commands saying, just don't eat this fruit. Because when you do, you will surely die. And those green arrows pointing in were temptation. Temptation that, that of, of uh, God's enemy, Satan, speaking to Eve and Adam, who was, it says, was with her, and saying, you know, if you just do what God told you not to do, you're going to be like God. You're going to be able to decide what's good and what's evil. It, it says that Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. That it was desirable. It was beautiful. It was desirable to make one wise. There were, there were good things. And the temptation was, you need that in order to get what you need for life. To be your own God. And so, of course, we know the story is that sin was committed. The boundary was crossed. Temptation was listened to. The temptation of, don't worry, it's no big deal. And this is what we are left with instead. Instead, what we are left with is that we have God's kingdom still. And there is so much more that we are tempted by. It's no longer just that one thing. And God's commands are still there saying, stay within my will. Stay about my kingdom. Stay about me as your God, your father, your king. And Satan is still saying, you know what? To get that security you want, to get that intimacy that you want, to get that sense of accomplishment, of success, to get that sense of, of achievement that you want, all you got to do is cross this line. All you got to do is go beyond the boundary to get it. And the temptation comes with it is, this, is the lie, and it's no big deal. First and foremost, we are called to ask God, keep us, keep me about your kingdom. Keep me about your will. Keep me about your name and your character. Our calling as God's children is to be about him. We'll come back to this picture. The prayer shifts to then our, to our seeking God's provision. And from it, I want to challenge you to participate in God providing for us. This is a strange statement. It kind of reflects uh, all of what's going on here. Again, this is a corporate prayer. That we should be participating in God's providing for us corporately. Jesus turns the prayer saying, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Remember, prayer is a major means in which we walk with God as our Father. And so even though God knows what you need, before you even pray, we pray because he is our father. We pray because he has told us to. We pray because it connects us with him. It allows us to walk in relationship with him. He wants us to talk with him about everything that we need. 
Even if we think we have what we need for today, we are to talk with him about our needs. Even if we don't think we have anything to confess to him, we are to pray as David prayed, search me and show me my wicked ways. And this is so that we might confess and walk more closely with him. Even if we can't be, imagine being tempted during our day, we are to engage with our Father to help us beforehand. So participate in God's providing for us and join God in His providing for our physical needs. He tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God sought to teach His children Israel to trust Him during their their journey through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. If you're reading along with our Bible reading plan, which I I hope you are, you're in Exodus. You're probably like in the tabernacle designing and building, you know, soldier through. Um, But God sought to teach his children Israel how to trust him. And, And Part of how he did that was he took them out into the wilderness. You know what basically defines the wilderness? There ain't no food there. There's no food for three million people. So what did God do? He gave them daily bread. He gave them something called manna. Manna in in the Hebrew language means what is it? Because with the dew, bread... Wafers of bread would cover the ground. And it was teaching them to trust him because another little detail is they weren't to gather more than just what they needed for that day. And at the end of the day, they were to throw it out and trust that God was going to provide it again. God teaching them to trust by providing daily bread. We too are called to trust God for our daily provision of our most basic needs. Just like we are to pray, even though God already knows what we need, we are to ask him for his provision, even if we think we already have it covered. Let's admit it. Uh, Most of us feel like my job is pretty secure. Uh, my, My roof isn't caving in. I'm already like making plans for 20 years from now, financially. But God wants us to know that we depend on him and to voice that we depend on him and truly depend on him. You know, as I prayed this morning, and I thought, okay, so Lord, how do I, how do I pray through this? I was praying, obviously, for, for our gathering this morning. I prayed about the afternoon that I'd have it home. I, I thought, oh, you know, Kelly and Micaiah are driving home from Illinois today. Lord, please give them protection. I, I think the intention is to stop and think, think through your day. To draw your mind and to lift up to God all the ways that he could and that you truly need for him to provide, even if you think you got it covered. We're taught here that we can truly experience the intended fellowship of God if we hold on to, uh, I'm sorry, 
I'm jumping ahead here. <laughs> also, we see here that we can join God in his providing for our restored fellowship. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Um, another tradition that Jesus uh, mentions here, I think is referring here to his audience, is the year of Jubilee. You see, according to the law, the Jewish people, every seven years and every 15 years, as they would loan money to brothers and sisters, other, other Jewish people, one, they were not to, to charge, they weren't to be predatory lenders. They were not to charge exorbitant interest, and really they weren't to charge interest of their Jewish brothers and sisters. But every seven years, they were supposed to wipe the slate clean. In the year of Jubilee, they were to say, it's the year of Jubilee, your debt is forgiven. If you'll notice here, Jesus isn't saying, forgive us our debts if we forgive those who have debts against us. He says, as we forgive those who have debts against us. I think what's being pointed to here is the idea of God forgiving our debts is already illustrated in the Jewish culture through the year of Jubilee. They were already experiencing this. Unfortunately, by that time, Jewish lawyers had figured out ways of getting around this law. But it was already being played out in the Jewish community. It's the year of Jubilee. Forgive the debts. And so we are to pray as that happens, that we are to pray that God would forgive our sins as that in the same way that that takes place in the year of Jubilee. To write off a debt says, you owe me nothing. And because the penalty of our sin was paid by Jesus on the cross, to confess our sins, to walk in God's forgiveness, is to be able to hear God say again, you owe me nothing. Because of Jesus. speak a little bit more about this picture of confession in, in, a, in a bit here. But lastly, we see here that we can join God in his providing for our deliverance from temptation. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is, has prepared, he has prepared to lead from us away from temptation or to strengthen us before we face it. Each of us know our besetting sins that seem to confront us in our most vulnerable moments. We just don't know when we're going to be vulnerable. But you know, in World War II, a major step before any invasion force could, could touch a beach was naval bombardments. The Navy would, would bombard and planes would bomb the beachheads, whether it be the beach of the Normandy coast or islands like Iwo Jima, before the Marines could make their landing. These, these I, I, I just can't imagine going through anything. I can't imagine being on one of these ships when these guns would be firing, let alone being on the land when they were landing. But they would pulverize the land to take care of the traps 
and the bunkers and the ambushes? What if a marine commander there in the boat is, is with his men and they're headed to the beach and he's like, guys, I got some bad news. I forgot to talk to the admiral and have him bombard the beach. I mean, that would be unheard of. It'd be like, turn around. Because we kind of need that. This is what we are encouraged to talk to God about. God, take out the traps. Remove the bunkers. Do your work ahead of time against the enemy. We must ask our Father to soften the enemy's attacks, the traps and the bunkers, before we hit the beach. And like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, we should pray, Lord, help me to have my running shoes on when I face temptation. Let me share with you that picture again that I think relates to these categories of prayer together, okay? Looking back at our picture of God's kingdom Our calling as God's children is to be about His kingdom, to carry out His will. Our enemy, God's enemy, is constantly tempting us to try to go outside of God's kingdom, outside of the boundary that God has put around our life, that that God has put around relationships or that He's put around a situation, to go outside of that, to cross over that, to find that intimacy that we need, to find that sense of success that we need, to find that sense of significance. That we need. He's saying, just step out here to get it. Just cross this line. It's no big deal. Fact is, it is a big deal. Satan's lie is it's no big deal. Just take a leap of faithlessness. The fact is, is that we're seeing the aerial view, but the reality is, it's more like a plateau. Jesus is, uh, Satan is saying, it's no big deal. But when we take that step, that first step is a doozy. Now, don't think that this picture indicates someone falling out of relationship with God, no longer having God as their Savior, as their Father. You know, if my son were to jump out of a plane, he's no long, it's not like he's no longer my son. Right? But... We slide down. We slide out of God's will. We slide, we're no longer about his kingdom. And if, we're, if we've got this, this fire insurance mentality, then we're just going to keep tumbling down, thinking, we're so glad for grace. No, God's grace is going to stop us in our tracks, hopefully, at some point, and turn us around. So, so in this situation... Satan's lie, well, well, we'll move on to the next picture here. So, so this is kind of what it really looks like. We're constantly falling off the plateau, stepping all over that boundary, not being concerned about God's will or God's kingdom, giving into temptation and finding ourselves outside of the work of the kingdom of God. Well, Satan does a bait and switch, right? Satan's lie was, it's not going to matter if you cross God's boundary. But then it switches to from it's no big deal to, oh, this is a huge deal. Now look at yourself. Now look what you got to do. 
you got to climb all the way back up there. Listen, folks, let me tell you something. All Satan has are lies. All he has are lies. And when we've given in to sin, that's his biggest and first and foremost. This is a really big deal. There's no redemption. There's no restoration. There's no reconciliation. So why does Jesus talk about the importance of praying that we might stay in God's kingdom and also the importance of praying, forgive us our debts? Because that's how we get back, guys. God does not make us climb back up into his kingdom. For you Trekkies, you understand a transporter room. That's what it is. Lord, I have sinned. This is wrong. I am where I'm at for my fault because I crossed your boundary. Please restore my relationship with you again. Please bring me back into fellowship with you again. Guys, if I'm on my game, I got to pray that probably 50 times a day. But God's saying, hey, good to see you. It's relationship. The importance of confession, just think it's kind of like beam me up. Through prayer, we are to seek for our physical needs from God as our fuel for us to continue to serve him. We are to seek his preemptive strikes against temptation and the guarding grace that he offers for our hearts. And we are to confess our sin and experience his forgiveness all over again as a way to renew our fellowship with him again. And he does that. Take him at his word in faith. Let's bow our heads. Father God, it is so amazing that I, that we can talk to you right now. And Lord, you've got billions of of voices coming at you right now, all at the same time. And you are intimately involved with all of your power, with all of your presence, with all of your knowledge to every single one of us all at the same time because you are God. Lord, I pray for a renewal of simple prayer. Thank you, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Thank you, Lord God, that we stand in the righteousness of Christ. Loosen our lips, Lord, so that your kingdom might come. Your will might be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.